So good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back. If you're coming back to the Inspire series, and if you've not joined us before, we can be warm welcome. Today is going to be absolutely fantastic, and we'll do the intros at the moment. And if you haven't joined, you'll know that I do like to play an intro piece of music. I've got to be honest, I've got no reason why we chose this one. This was a choice from Andy, but I love it nonetheless. Uh, while you're all logging in, uh, do say hello to all the other attendees and, and start getting used to putting your uh, chats in. Uh, we're very keen that you do ask questions during this session. So if uh, you want to put it in the Q&A, then it's more likely. But I will try to go and have a look at the chat as well. With that, Pusoletso, uh, let me hand over to you and you can do the info. Thank you, Colin. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for participating in this week's episode of the Inspire series. My name is Busileto Gobinga. I'm the head of financial planning and analytics in finance. I've gained valuable transformation and digital experience during my time in consulting, so I feel honored to participate in today's episode with Andrew Baker. But before we get into that, just a short recap on last week's episode. Last week, Colin spoke to Gina Bianchini, the founder and CEO of Mighty Networks, on using digital communities to transform businesses. We heard of Gina extraordinary journey to building a successful platform, the Mighty Networks, that has now over 400,000 active communities and how these communities are positively impacting society. It was definitely worth the watch and so inspiring. This week we speak to Andrew Baker, who is the Chief Technology Officer of the APSA Group. During his time at APSA, Andrew has led a tech revolution, bringing solutions which makes him better suited to speak on transforming financial services, which is our topic for today. In this session, Colin will ask Andrew Baker to share his predictions before exploring the practical steps incumbent leaders must take if they want to thrive in a world where change is now. Thank you again for making the time today to watch what promises to be another insightful episode in our Ayoko Inspire series. And as Colin has mentioned, just remember, you're more than welcome to post your questions or comments in the chat for our speaker. I'd now like to hand over to Colin, who will facilitate the conversation. Thank you. Over to you, Colin. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, I've been looking forward to this. And I have to confess, I've known Andy for a long time. I've worked with him for a long time. Somehow, despite that, we've remained friends. And I'm absolutely honored that he has decided to join us. Andy, welcome. Thanks, Cole, and thanks for inviting me. Now, we're going to try to cover a lot. Um, this is, I always said at the end, I always wish there was more than an hour, and I know in advance on this one that we're going to run out of time very, very quickly, because for anyone that doesn't know Andy, and I find that difficult, because if you're on LinkedIn and if you're involved in the tech sector, you're going to be following Andy, and if you're not, you need to go and subscribe to him on, on LinkedIn, because his posts are as good as they are intellectually they're equally funny and i enjoy reading them for that fact alone even if i don't understand half of the content that he's actually talking about born a technologist i think would be the word i would describe you with i don't think i can imagine you not being interested in coding and learning something new and we'll be talking about that and the importance for leaders to carry on learning as well we'll be talking about your predictions the technologies that you are most excited about the ones that you're playing with at the moment and I think most importantly, trying to get your views on uh, what leadership really can do with technology in their organization. Because being honest, I look at most organizations and they really seem to struggle to go and utilize technology to the full extent. 
So with that, I'm going to start with the first question, and let's let's get right into the technology stuff. What's the stuff that's exciting you most at the moment, Andy? Um, so I guess the thing that changed this year was um, AWS. Fin well, are finishing their their build out of um, you know, free availability zones in Cape Town. Um, we've 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 been using AWS for for three years, but mostly in Ireland, and then. Obviously, the undersea cables are always a, an existential threat to your, to your business. And we saw that earlier this year when they, they went a bit wobbly. So having it in Cape Town is a big deal for us. And the nice thing about it is it's not a technology. It's a whole suite of technologies. And it's got a really nice marketplace. Um, you know, so you can bring in you know, third-party providers into your, state, into your state relatively easy. So I spent a lot of time this year unpacking it. I think... Um, a lot of people's AWS journey or cloud journeys are, are littered with kind of media statements, but maybe not, not that much execution. And I think there's, there's great reasons for that. Having you know, finished a lot of training on it, I can understand why people struggle with, with cloud adoption and, and transforming it. It, it. it touches so much of your organization. Everything kind of doesn't work. Um, if you've got... You know, your finance processes are all geared toward buying hardware and switches and, and you don't do that anymore. And everyone wants like a, you know, a multi-year view on what things will cost and, you know, you can change it in a minute. So, you know, notwithstanding the problems of moving technology into the cloud, the actual machinery around your organization has to change a lot. And so, so that, that's, that's proved to be a lot of fun. But despite that, I mean, you make it sound like it's quite complex to go and move from your hosted solutions actually into the cloud, but are you still pursuing it? Is it something that you believe in? It's complex, yeah, it's complex to do it well. Um, and so, um, and also, you know, from a security perspective, um, the uh, AWS is, or any cloud uh, solution is 100% secure-able. And it's those last three letters that, that, you know, play on my mind a lot. Um, so yeah, we, we, we put a lot of energy. There's always this trade-off in, in cloud. It's kind of built um, you know, with kind of federation of, 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 of you know, accessing the APIs, doing what you need to do yourself. And then that obviously creates a little bit of a consistency issue. And so you're trying to get that really sweet spot where you can have teams at scale doing what they want, but doing what they want in a kind of non-explosive way. Um, and so we've put, put a huge amount of energy into that. And I've, I've really enjoyed the engineering effort that we've put around that. We came up with this, we call it a security sandwich. So we kind of put like an edge on both sides that, that is very secure. And that took quite a bit of engineering. So uh, it's worth doing. It's definitely worth doing. It changes everything. Um, it's, not, it's not a data center. I've seen some really funny um, cloud migration <laughs> strategies you know, where, and I won't mention names, obviously, where, you know, um, where CIOs with a finance background will, will go to a cloud provider and buy millions of dollars worth of pre-commit. I'm saying I will, and, you know, and it's a bit like, it's a bit like if you shop in Sainsbury's or Woolworths, it's a bit like giving them your next three years bills up front. You know, why would you do that? You can just go in. It's, it's on the shelf, right? You don't, it isn't a data center. You don't have to pay up front. That's, the, that's kind of the whole, obviously you'll get discounts, et cetera, but it, you know, it doesn't help because 
you've got all that money locked up in, in that cloud provider and you can't use it. It's actually an engineering problem, not a finance problem. Looks good so on the balance sheet the P&L though. Say again? It looks good on the balance sheet and the P&L with that discount. Yeah, it does until, until you get like your utilization stats. And you go, okay, that, in, that little vert there just the cost me $18 million. Yeah, they don't go in the trial balance. But go on, why don't you, well, for, for those that aren't in the tech space, do you want to just run through why you're such a big backer of, of cloud? And you mentioned one of the uh, terms with your uh, secure, securable. Yeah, so um, the, the, the biggest thing for me is that, you know, there's a, there's a couple of layers around this. There's a, there's a human layer, there's an infrastructure layer, and there's a software layer. Um, and all of those are improved, you know. So from an infrastructure perspective, a lot of people will use, uh, and I don't, I'm going to deliberately avoid mentioning names, but a specific vendor for their hypervisor. And everyone will go, yeah, we know who that is. And they're very good, by the way. That vendor's very good. It's a great discipline. What you get in AWS, uh, the Nitro hypervisor or the Zen hypervisor are on a different level. Um, so that's great. So you use that to... And go and Google that and research that. The hypervisor piece in AWS is great. Then the human layer, you know, obviously with COVID, we're not pulling cables in data centers right now. You know, well, at least we weren't. And, and we, you know, the, the operational toil of running data centers is quite high. You know, so there's all these, this change management that you have, every single bank and every single institution is doing, pulling cables, changing firewall rules, doing all that toil. And you don't do a lot of that you don't do in AWS. And then the final part is the software. Now, I'd say three or four years ago, the software was okay, um, not brilliant. I'd say that they've taken off, you can see they've taken on a lot more financial services customers because some of their newer generations, things like um, Aurora as a database, I mean, and Dynamo uh, and Lambda, there's, there's some really, really awesome. There's also a lot of immature technology in the cloud providers. They tend to kind of pitch it before it's from at least from a financial services perspective but um the software piece is the bit that actually excites me so we're not doing toil that's great uh we have less we, and, and if you think about it fundamentally what you want is everyone in your organization working for your customers and actually if you look at your organization most of your people won't be right they'll be doing something else you know they'll, they'll be doing things in the background that your customers won't notice. Well, they'll only notice when you get it wrong. And, and so we would like to create an organization that, are, that all the oxygen in the organization is faced on like pointing at customer problems, not the toil of you know, running the operational pieces of being, being a sort of Pan-African bank. And, that, and that's what excites me about the cloud. Because- and security issues, the security issues totally comfortable with it compared to hosted it's it's far easier and far less susceptible because obviously report after report coming out over the last couple of weeks last couple of months about the massive increase at hacker attacks that are going on against financial institutions yeah no look so on the one hand um if you look at things like aws shield um their waf uh and some of their security products i'm, not, I'm just talking about AWS. you can apply, apply something they are very good I mean, exceptional. They can, they can stand up to a two, 300 gigabyte DDoS attack, right? And for us to do that on premise, that's quite difficult, right? So on that hand, and also things like um, CloudTrail, CloudWatch, uh, they've got Security Hub, they've got a, an, a, an assault of tools that you can deploy to kind of monitor your state, 
we could never do something like that on premise. So there's a huge uplift. You obviously have to kind of configure it and get it to work for you so that you can see what's going on. Um, so that's very, very positive. What, what, you, what you also have to do though, is you have to make sure that you build your environment in a, in a way that is fundamentally safe, right? And, and safe is like kind of bunny's ears safe. You know, the, you, you, the Capital One case that you saw recently where you know, somebody in AWS, I think it was an ex-employee, you know, got, I don't know, 100 million customers' data and stuff. You know, that, that would have, I'd argue that possibly would have been harder to do that on an on-premise, um, you know, legacy infrastructure. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not, you can do it in both, but I'm saying that if you actually read the root cause around that, you could, so, so in general, you will be in a better place especially if you put energy into it. And I think the biggest piece of advice that I can give to any teams that are going on the AWS up that cloud journey um, is don't split security. Don't have a separate CISO and your development teams. I'd say that because what happens is you're ready to go live and you say, hey, CISO, can you sign this off? And they're like, well, you know, what, what is it? And then there's like three months figuring out what they're signing off. And, and in that time, there's pressure to put the thing live. Um, and I think that's where a lot of issues come up. If, if you put your security partners with the teams day one, and they can advise and coach them, I think you remove a lot of risk. They know what they're in for. They can, you know, they have to be part from day one of product development in, in cloud. I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit them separately. Separate report lines, and they've got a separate purpose. But I would say the teams need to be cross-functional. That's a critical point. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but I want to get a, um, your views on some of the other uh, technologies which you're also focused on. Can you talk a little bit about open source? I can talk for hours on that. Um, <laughs> so, um, so about you know about three four years ago, Barclays decided to to sell AppSet. They decided to divest of their interest from that, and and. Um, and so when we, yeah, we, we obviously, there was a lot of negotiations and we got a, a settlement to kind of pull back all the services that had been pushed to London. And uh, for me, that was an exciting day because, you know, at the, the bar, the, you know, and you see this with most global banks, their model is really around these enterprise license agreements, these ELAs, where they say, I'm, I'm an intergalactic entity. And they go to a vendor or software provider saying, I want to buy this for the universe. And so they get great pricing. I'd argue some of the products that they buy are not as great as the pricing that they've got for that. And you tend to have what I would say is an a vendor affinity. If I can do that as long as the answer, I can do any product you want as long as vendor X supports that. And you'd see that in our state. Three or four years ago, I'd say three or four vendors made up the entire suite of things that we did. Um, and some of their products were okay. Some of them were shocking and, and, and not great. And then what started to happen is we'd buy software. When you look at it, it's actually all open source. So we'd be paying somebody to deliver us open source software, configure them. So <clears throat> um, what happened was we, we had a couple of big projects. One was in our Africa state where we built a payments, uh, multiple payments um, uh, class, uh, types. Uh, and the product was called, project was called Macola, and we built that all on open source Kubernetes. Um, and then, and so we had, and we also did DebiCheck, which is a big industry thing in South Africa. We also did that 
most of that, one piece was vendor. And ironically, that was the piece that gave us problems. Um, so so we, we had like a bit of a pedigree in doing open source dev. And then Valpre came along and we just supercharged it. And we've, we've never been happier. That's not to say that we don't buy software. We absolutely do. But we don't buy these bundled together products that take five years to install. Things like Salesforce, that's not open source. You know, Office isn't open source. So we're really happy to buy pedigree you know, software. But in general, the, the purchasing opportunities are more at a co component level than a product level, um, which, is, which is probably quite a, a challenge for, for software providers because you know, a, a lot of the, the business models that they had was, we'll sell you this thing, it's, it's 50p, you know, I'm sorry, five rand, right? Wow, I'm saving so much money. And you say, okay, can, I, can you change that button there to export it to Excel? And I say, okay, sure, it's $2,000 a day per resource, and we need someone for six months to do that. So on the one hand, you go, I've got the cheapest product in the world until I need to change something. And there was a lot, and, and so the open source completely turned that on the head. One, we were able to employ South African resources on RAND base, which given where the RAND is right now, turns out to be an, an awesome place to find ourselves in. So we wanted to bring work into the country, which I think was you know, a good corporate thing to do. And two, we were able to react to change. You know, we ship, some of our products ship seven or eight times a day. They do product releases and, and, and based on South African resources. So the, the biggest problem for me on open source was upskilling. And actually we've got, a, we've gotten, we've got into a rhythm there. We're, we're comfortable. We talked to some of the universities, we've got a digital academy. And I'm saying, I, my experience of South Africa is very, reactive to opportunities if if it's open and transparent so how do you get those through um, and get support because we all know that most of most organizations senior leadership teams aren't that tech savvy um, you're sitting there <laughs> going to them and saying oh we've got to move everything to the cloud the regulators are coming in and go oh your internal colleagues in compliance and, and legal are starting to get worried. Guys are sitting there in the finance department being concerned about the technical debt that's going to have to be written off to go and move into this place. You mentioned mm. open source and it's uh, fear, fear of security, fear of complexity, you know, fear of, I guess, a lack of awareness of what it really can offer. How have you managed to go and push these things through across what is, in all honesty, a very old-fashioned organization and industry indeed with banking? So you'd be surprised actually um what uh, so the way the way that we did it is we had a couple of projects right and uh there's a guy in cib um i'll mention his name is called richard salvi and um, i talked to him about devicheck and i said i want to do this on open source i want to do it on kubernetes and these are just words and i said i, I will do something very special uh, uh and and we did the architecture and he backed us Right. So, so we got backing from the business. One project, I said, what, you know, if it goes wrong, the worst thing that hap will happen is I get fired. Right. And, um, you know, so, so, uh, and I knew I wasn't going to get fired, obviously, um, as I was confident it was going to be fine. Uh, and it was quite tense, I would say, the first project that we did. <clears throat> but it worked. And actually, the weird thing is in that project, we had, as I said, we had one product that we left as vendor. And that, that's called, and now that's getting removed with open source, right? So, so the experience of it from the, the business then started to sell it internally and said, I've got this thing, the cost of ownership is almost nothing. The guys are able to turn features around. 
We've got brilliant monitoring. We can, you know, and so, so it became a thing. And then we did vehicle finance. Um, and that went live earlier this year, just before COVID struck. Um, and that business is super successful. I mean, we had half the number of staff available due to isolation and whatever. And the business worked perfectly all the way through COVID. It was, you know, so, so it, I think if you just wake up one day and say, we're going to make the entire bank open source, that's tense. You know, you definitely get some, some, some silence for that comment. But we didn't. We just, we, we've just been, we've been getting good at it. And I, I don't think we're alone anymore. I think a lot of the financial institutions and non-financial institutions are wanting to play in this space. Do yourself a favor. Go to ABSA Open Source. And so we are not just taking from, from the open source community. If you go to ABSA OSS, Google ABSA OSS, and you'll see that our big data team are very active there. We've done things like a mainframe to Spark converter called Cobrix. We've done dynamic lineage, dynamic lineage in, Spark, in Spline for BCBS. So we've, we've put a lot of effort into sharing back with the communities. And we've got quite a lot of banks using our software now. So I think that that's Andre's question, which I was just going to ask you directly. Do you contribute back into the open source community? Yeah, we have 30 repos. Um, and there's two that are very popular at Databricks Summit in Ireland, um, Spline, uh, which is our, our, our Spark lineage engine. Uh, that was super, you know, super well received. We have a couple of banks in Europe using it. Quite, you know, quite a few banks in the US now use it. So that, that is a big one. Cobricks going from mainframe to Spark, you know, so from a COBOL copybook into a Spark frame. That's quite a tricky thing to do. That's very, very popular. My funnest, funnest, I don't even think that's a word. My, 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 my happiest moment in open source was we were trying to get a, a GSLB, a load, a load balancer, onto Kubernetes directly. So, uh, and um, we, and we, we approached about 10 vendors to say, solve this. You know, all the load balancer vendors, go fix this. They all failed properly, like horrifically. Uh, and ABSA has got this thing called K8GB, Kubernetes uh, Global Load Balancer. Uh, that's not an open source thing. And that thing is a beautiful. It's written by a guy called Yuri in Prague. And it's a, it's a beautiful piece of software. It's such, we showed it to the rancher CEO. And it was like, this is unbelievable. So what's I'm your advice for CTOs that are trying to go and uh, push for the utilization of these technologies? You were lucky. You had someone like Rich. Uh, who nodded his head, probably didn't understand half of what you said and supported you because he believes and trusts in you and you've got results and pedigree from uh, previous implementations. What about other CTOs? Maybe they don't have a rich. How, how do you go and start engaging with your colleagues across the organization to get support for these types of initiatives? You've got, you got a couple of strategies there. I mean, you know, so typically it depends on how prescriptive your organization is around solving problems. Typically, the prescription is time and money. I've got this much money and this much time, right? So, so if you're open source, you need less money and less time. So normally you win on that thing. And then you go, and then what you can do is you say, here's the vendor solution. By the way, seven of the components are open source as well. So, so then it becomes, then it comes down to a skills, uh, you know, a, a skills challenge. Um, and, you know, my view on it is a lot of people say that you can't get the skills in South Africa. I disagree. I, I really think you can make them. I, my 15-year-old son uh, has got his, uh, I, 
there's a long story behind this. Not going to go into it on this call, but actually, I'll just shorten it. I'm not buying him a car. Right? I refuse to buy him a car. When he says, "When I when I'm 18, you got buy me no chance." So I said, "You have to do certification, and I'll pay you for that, and you can use that to get the car when you're 18." So he's got his cloud practitioner. He's 15, you know, and um, so so my challenge is you can't say with all the Udemy's and Coursera and brilliant content out on YouTube that you cannot make skills. My, my argument is just make the opportunity and build the culture where, where you have this, you know, the, the, the tenacity and fortitude to see through that transformation. Don't go big early, win, you know, go after something that's fundamentally winnable and just create that culture. We, we've been at it for five years and you know, where we are right now, we can tackle any project, anything that comes in, but we're very choosy. We don't pick things that somebody else will do a lot better than us. So I wouldn't tackle Salesforce, right? That'd be a crazy project. You just, you're never going to win that. I wouldn't tackle, you know, rewriting Office or rewriting an operating system. We're very fussy. We pick things that our customers care about. Talk to me about that skill set. We've talked about this before. Um, I think you said that it usually takes, you can't think of any instance where you'd need to train someone up for more than two years to get the necessary skill set to do anything that you wanted. Are you still standing by that? Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd say I'm, st I'm stood near it, um, not, not by it. Um, so, so like, like, you know, when, when high frequency trading came out, I was a civil engineer. Okay. And within a year, I was an expert at high frequency trading. Guess why? Because it had only been around for a year. So if you look at things like, you know, big data, AI, a lot of the new, you know, cloud, you, I'm, a cl I'm a cloud expert. Right? I've self-declared cloud expert. Why? Well, I've got a few certs and I've been at it for a couple of years. And so my, my challenge is that if, you know, if you put the energy in, if you can, you just pick an emerging technology that you think is, and you just got to, the, the one thing you have to learn from history, um, don't be a purist. So, uh, you know, I, I really thought Betamax was the best video cassette that you could have, you know, technically speaking, it was way better than VHS. What that fight taught you is community wins. Community always wins, right? So if you're part of the small community, you ain't going to win. Accept it, move on, move to something else. So, 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 yeah, I would say whenever I pick my fights, I always go, where's the community? Even if the product isn't exactly what I want or the you know, the, the framework or the architecture or the operating system, if that's where the community is, you can guarantee it's, it's, it's the winner. And, and pick Linux and Windows, another great example. So what can companies, and this isn't really just for banking, but what can, you know, leadership teams, you know, do on that basis to go and actually get those skills in? Because like, I, I kind of when I stand back, I look at it, it feels very rigid. You know, I have to employ this person with this skill set. You're giving us an alternative here. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that question. Please ask me about lock-in. So uh, Sean's just posted it on lock-in. That's a, that's a good conversation as well. So I was reading that and I wasn't paying attention to your question. What did you say? <laughs> Let's do that one again. For yeah. CEOs and the leadership teams out there, if you think that you can train people up in a year or two, yeah. what's the advice to them so that they accelerate their, their, uh, their depth of digital knowledge in their organizations? Just use third parties and consultants or do something else? No, no. and I think, I think that's one of, one of my challenges as well. I think, you know, there is a place for that. Um, just be careful when it becomes a dependency. You know, there, there's nothing worse than every project starts with pro fees 
to, you know, so, so Mark, give you a slightly different way of looking at it. I've been in a position where people have left my organization to work for a consultancy and other parts of my organization has hired that guy back three months later as an expert, right? In X. And I'm like, he's not an expert. You know, he, I know him. He's not even a, there's nothing there. There's no, you know, that's not a, a ta- so, so what does that, what did that organization do to, to back? Well, they just sent him on training, right? That's what they did. They, they put him on training, they gave him access and they said, you go and learn blockchain. You be an expert in blockchain and we'll stand you up as the global expert of blockchain. And three months later, I'm like, that dude, there's no, you know, and so, so, so why don't we do that? Why don't we inter- institutionalize learning? Uh, why, why, what exactly do you recommend for, you know, learning? Learning takes time. It means they're not productive. It means they're doing other stuff. Not learning takes more time. So, so the, 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 and, that, and, that, and that's, the, that's the big lie that most organization lives in. But if you look at that, John Hagel is like one of the best talk public speakers on this. He talks about the two models, scalable efficiency and scalable learning. And, and everyone intrinsically, all your processes will be about scalable efficiency. Can I be a little bit more efficient this time next year? And, and there is waste in learning, right? There's definitely waste. You learn some of the things I've learned, I know I'll never use, but it's way better than, it's way better than the alternative. The alternative is you just die slowly. Um, and, and, and anyone can disrupt. Look at fintechs. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not relying on 20 years legacy you know, to, to, they go, they're all about what are, and they start with a zero base. They say, what are the five technologies that want to come in to solve this particular problem? They don't say what ELAs have we got, you know, that we can use that reuse the same license of the same rubbish product to solve these customer problems. So, so for me, we, we try and set aside a day a week. Uh, and, and what we have is technical debt in there. That's one of the things we do because that wastes a lot of time fixing things in production. So in that day a week, we try and create a clean day. So we say all these things, we've wasted time on this week, we're gonna automate them so we don't have to do that. And then we, and then I'll try and set half that day or at least a few hours of that into training. My whole team, uh, they have to do certification every single year. Um, I, don't, I don't believe in PDs. Uh, I think they're puerile and annoying, but um, I, I do believe in, in a culture where you're, your leadership team is demonstrably committed to, it's not just adware where you're saying we're doing, you know, punchlines of stuff that you're doing when you actually don't do it. So So about what you just said there, I don't believe in PDs. Just expand on that. (laughs) It's just such a bad thing. You know, the the one thing I was talking to someone about this the other day. Does everyone know Um, what PDs are? There's an absence. I don't know what it is, personal development plans or something like that. It, it's just so wrong that, that you want team-based outcomes and you're going to manage individuals. The best people to manage the individuals are the team, right? Instead, you say, you're the manager, you manage the people. So then everyone's kind of incentivized to have a personal relationship with the manager to be friends with him, to be, you know, you know to, it's like a, you know, it's like one of those, um, desert island things where you're trying to like, like influence the guy that's got the ring so you don't get fired or kicked off the island. It's, it's completely against the product's interest. So I, I don't believe in that. I do a, P, a team PD. 
and say, this team's goal is to do that. Do it together, right? Now, your, your, your PD is to go do training, to go learn, to in, enhance yourself, to grow. I don't need to write that on a document. How, how horrific. Imagine if I tell someone to learn Bitcoin and then they learn Kubernetes. And I said, yeah, I said Bitcoin and you did Kubernetes. So I'm going to have to ding you a few marks for that. Uh, and the other thing that's really weird to me is if you've got children, like imagine this moment, right? They're in your custody. They look up to you. You know, they want to impress you. And at the end of the year, they say, Dad, how was my year? And you say, yeah, I need some improvement. You know, you're good. You know, everyone responds really well to praise. And I find it so perverse that organizations would ration praise. You know, they'd say, so I, I'll tell everyone, you're all awesome. I love you. You're and they can figure out what the little things that they need to work out within the team. And, and I also tell them that, by the way, you know, the fact that I adore you doesn't mean I can give you a 20 million round bonus. They're not the same thing. You know, we are limited financially in terms of how we can recognize you, but we're not limited with words and actions. And, you know, and, 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 and why would you do that? And it's all this, this fixation on tough messages. I, I, I really don't enjoy it. I think it's very counterproductive. I think it's praise and, and adoration and respect and, you know, encouragement. That teams work brilliantly under those circumstances. So I don't like PDs. How do you work out how to pay um, everyone, I think, is going to resonate about the power of teams when they're working well and they're functioning together and the manager no longer needs to be managing because they've got that nice flywheel effect. They're all helping each other. Yes. It's incredibly difficult to work out which member of the team is better than the others and who to pay more and the impact of a certain person in terms of their importance. How do you deal with that? So, so we, don't, we, we don't generally, actually. Um, there, there is a uniformity of our pay at a team level. And, um, and, and high-functioning teams are paid a little bit more. And teams that need a little bit more help get a little bit more advice and supervision and help and elevation. But um, at the end of the day, there's not a big difference, actually. It turns out it's about skills and experience and contribution. And in the teams, there are definitely individuals with high skills that would demand high pay. And the market kind of figures that out. And if you get it wrong, they'll leave, right? So, so we don't get it wrong. We make a focus around making sure we keep talent and we make sure that that talent is incentivized to create versions of itself so that we scale the knowledge of that individual versus telling that person, you do all these things and they hold on to knowledge and then they don't share with the team. And so we try and incentivize them the other way. Share with your team and lift everyone up and you will be recognized for that. How do you deal with the people that find that tricky? Because they've got aspirations of becoming the next CEO, CTO, getting into the top level. They like the relationship with their manager and to, to go and manage the network and the politics. I advise strongly against it. There be dragons. Uh, the <laughs> greasy pole. It's no. So, so I, I, I yeah, I... I <laughs> I don't, I don't, funny enough, I, I don't, we don't really create that culture of management aspirations. Um, so so we've, we've introduced this thing called a principal engineer, which, which is the opposite of that, which basically says we'll recognize you for being an awesome engineer, like a director engineer or a senior. So we're trying to create a technical hierarchy, not that I'm a fan of hierarchies, but technical recognition um, and I think we're about to announce our first 
cohort of principal engineers. I think it would be about half a dozen that made it through. And I did the interviews for like a, for that and I, I had such fun with the guys. I kept changing my, my requirements and kept messing with them. And they had a day to design Twitter on AWS. So, um, so that, that was fun. So we, we encouraged people, you know, and, and the thing about it the other way, why would you want to create an organization around management? Like that ma surely management is like a taxation of energy. You know, like what, a, what a bad way to spend your day managing. Wouldn't it be better if you could just get stuff done? So, um, so I still, I still work. I still learn. I still help people with designs and architecture. I, I don't feel my contribution is about being in an office on the seventh floor with carpet, you know, and volivons outside my room and a, you know, that, that, I don't know, that's probably like a bad thing, but like prawn sandwiches, that, that isn't my contribution to ABSA. It's actually helping guys figure stuff out. Go back to the other example. You mentioned that on that cloud uh, program, the importance of cross-functional teams where you were bringing yes. in the, you know, the security guys, the compliance guys up front. Can you just expand on how powerful that is across other examples that you've worked on? It's key. It's actually key. Um, so the, the, the functionalization thing is horrific in software development and only accountants back it. So you think about Henry Ford, um, I, you know, his functionalization rate, what he did with Ford motor cars was brilliant. He functionalized everything. There was probably like a global head of the right light wing nut tightening. Right. I'm sure there's someone who had that title in Ford one. And he was the guy that was responsible for the right wing nut on the front line. And his job was to tighten it. And software developments. So what, why was that so successful? Well, in, it turns out making co uh, motor cars is all about zero tolerance. It's no deviation. It's making 50,000 things that look identical. And it turns out robots do that a lot better than humans anyway. And robots are functional. And I get it, right? So in engineering terms, zero tolerance, low discovery, low variance, that's key. That's the opposite of software development. Software development is about width of solutions and, 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 and iterations and evolving something, not starting off with someone who's head of something arbitrary and random that blocks your project. So I've had projects before where load balancing stopped me going live. I'm like, you know, that, that's just weird. Why, would load balance, why wouldn't I be able to consume a load balancing service in my teams? And so for me, I want a sec, zero segmentation on my teams, full stack. That doesn't mean that everybody does everything. There obviously will be specializations. What we do is, you know, for example, databases. We sit it behind an orchestration API. Um, and what, what changes then is that this is, this is such a long combination. So, so right now, my DBAs deal with production issues and, and they create another database. That's what they do. But actually in the world where all of that goes away, I use RDS, it's managed by someone else. The orchestration is just an API. They're like, I've got nothing to do. You know, I'm so scared. What am I gonna do with my life? And, and I say, well, hold on a second. How big is that database? And they go, it's 40 terabytes. I'm like, is that good? Not really. Wouldn't it be great if you create an archiving service that takes care of that? And when the guys want it, it dynamically brings it back. Well, yeah, that's pretty cool. So then, then, you, have, then you have fraud, internal fraud. And you say, well, what happened there? Someone injected a row in that table and we didn't see it because they deleted the logs. And so, so we move people from an operational mindset 
into a kind of like a digital mindset where they are almost something that could exist outside your organization that anybody would want to buy versus a grudge purchase that's the ABSA way or the Standard Bank way or the whatever way. Do you never worry about um, the control and oversight though? Because the concern I think has been historically when you bring people together, cross-discipline, multifunctional, you've basically got the power to do everything and you can break and therefore, there's this kind of real, you know, this this wish and desire to go and have people to police. Uh, yes. Because they think that's going to improve the or reduce the likelihood that these bad things will happen. Is that your experience or is it rather the reverse? It's, no, it, you can have that, right? Definitely. You can even have that in the old world. You know, people talk to each other anyway. They deal with each other day in, day out. So, so you can have it in the functional world and you can definitely have it in that. What we argue is we architect the software you know, so we create immutable locks. They're immutable, right? You can't mess with them. We, we do all these protection factors. We have Imperva. We have uh, software that spots you jumping onto a database. We have Counterbridge that looks at the alerts, runs AI and says, that's weird. Why would you pull you know, a, a gigabyte of data down onto a laptop? So, so you can't just do it. Everything changes and you have to think about everything. And so, and that, and that's, that's the fun part of being a CTO. Not just saying I've got this wacky idea and I think it won't blow the bank up. You actually have to engineer every edge of it all the way through. So a huge amount of time going into things like elastic searches, forensic searches. That means if anything happened over there, I'll definitely see it. And you test it. You actually have a little team that tests. Is that control working? Now you wanted to talk about lock-ins. Yes. Yes. So that, that, thank you for whoever posted that one. Um, so I guess there's two ways to think of that. I'm locked into a physical data center. I'm locked into the hardware that's in that physical data center because it's on my balance sheet. And I'm locked into the software that's on that hardware because there's an ELA and it's three. So there's always a lock-in. But it's a fair observation that when you move from A to B, are you trading up, down, or sideways? And what you see with most of the cloud providers, including Azure and AWS, is they have a marketplace. So you can choose, do you want to use their WAF or do you want to buy a WAF? And if you buy that WAF, can you buy that WAF somewhere else? But the most interesting thing about cloud for us um, is really Kubernetes. Um, so, so I don't see the cloud as a hypervisor, you know, where I want to stand up like machines and load balance and figure out all that nonsense. Actually, the, 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 you know, the Kubernetes environment, and not just KA, also look at K3 or K3S, um, because that orchestration over containers is very, very powerful. So we've created a product called Subatomic. And what that did is it said, actually, developers shouldn't care where we are. So you go from your code, and it goes all the way through a build pipeline to somewhere. Now that can be, we've obviously got 10 countries. Some of those countries are not very cloud friendly. So we can literally run super micro hardware in that country and deliver Kubernetes into that. So we can deliver the solutions there or we can deliver it into a cloud provider or another cloud provider. And whilst AWS has 180 products, we as a, as a, as a team support about 50 of them. And we're very careful about which ones we pick. Sometimes we pick things like Lambda because it's profound in terms of its impact technology wise. But a lot of the times we go, actually we prefer Postgres. We prefer, we prefer commodity software that can run on any cloud provider. So we're careful about the stitching in, we accept that there's an exit wound. You know, so if we left our cloud provider, 
we accept that there's an exit room, it, the payback is like six months. You know? So for me to move from on, and for me to move on-prem to AWS, the timing of that is all about depreciating the hardware, selling the hardware on when it's, you know, when you've got off of it. We're, we're doing a lot of machinery in there to avoid impairments and to have an orderly trans transition from the world that we know today to the world that we want to be in. I hope that answers their question. What I want to do now, we've got about um, 15 minutes and I want to um, start bringing things back towards uh, the title. Now, what have we got so far? The title being, you know, transformation and financial services. Um, yes. Some of the suggestions that you've gone through, you know, not, not purchasing systems based on large franchise-wide discounts, especially when those particular platforms are not necessarily very good. Yeah. Um, and these are the extreme versions, no management. You know, mm. in terms of setting these things up, continual learning and the encouragement of continual learning across those teams, mm. focusing on the positives and the upside um, across those teams rather than the sort of directional aspects of it. It's easy to give away uh, compliments if they're genuine. It's quite difficult to do that with budget constrained uh, monetary mechanisms. Um, Accessing and using things like the cloud over time and being comfortable to go and start exploring things in, in open source. These are really difficult things for many organizations to actually start even thinking about, let alone even applying because of their, mm. um, their legacy. How do you start that kind of change in mindset to get this open, communal, self-sufficient, flywheel kind of mechanism going because there's no clear direction there's no strategy at the end of this that you're setting Andy so you you can relate to this right you you're from Somerset um just for everyone's benefit Colin was born in a place called Wookie Hole um <laughs> which <laughs> google it it's very funny um so and and like I don't know 60 70 years ago electricity came along and uh, in our part of the world, in the farming part of the UK, we were very scared to turn the light switch on. You know, we stared at that switch for week after week after week, and specifically Wookiee Hole people, um, you know, they, they took 10 more years to figure out how to turn the light switch on. And so it turns out fear is your biggest obstacle. And what we, the way that we dealt with that is demos. So actually everyone in your organization typically wants your organization to win. And they're scared of open source because it's like a word, right? And they could just Google it and they can see all the CVEs. They don't realize what you have already has as many vulnerabilities in there. And you, you know, how you design security is actually about constantly refreshing software, not sitting looking at software that's 10 years old. So I spent a lot of energy taking risk and audit and compliance people and saying, come, look at this. And when you show people and you sit there and they actually can see the thing running and they go, wow, there's a moment where they go, this isn't bad. This is really good. I don't know what to do with it, but I, I support it. And, and so in my experience, I, I, I genuinely think that, that most organizations would adopt you know, modern ways of working, modern technology, if you took the time to take the people through who you perceive are blockers, because actually nine times out of 10, they're not blockers at all. They well, just let's don't. In, let's come in from a different angle then, Andy. So um, in our um, five minutes of preparation for today's call yesterday, we talked, <laughs> <laughs> we did prepare. We talked yeah. about um, 
What's your preference? I guess that was the question. What is your preference? Would you prefer to have a six, 12 month timeline to deliver a specific thing and a 2 billion round budget or five or six people around you, a couple of whiteboards, you know, and um, a bit of a kind of a challenge as to what you're trying to do, which, which is your preference here? Maybe I'll B. give you a hundred thousand rand on the B as B. well. B. Can you explain B. that? Because hundred thousand rand, six people on a whiteboard doesn't feel like a strategic path to grow a company exponentially. And yet you're saying it does. Yeah, the only thing that matters is durable teams. Uh, you know, so, so this whole SI, OPEX, run the bank, build the bank, change the bank, all rubbish. It's just, it's just a waste of energy. It's people and problems. And, and, and so you have to engineer that. So the most valuable thing for me is like capacity to deal with the stuff that's going to come through without asking constantly for SI. You, you, we have projects in some organizations, not, not necessarily all my organization, but I've seen projects, I talk to you know, people in other companies, they have a project that's 200,000 rand. I'm like, what is the governance cost of a project that's to about 300,000 rand? Like surely something's a little bit weird there. So, so I, I can't stand the concept of a project because typically what it means is I'm going out to someone to pay someone five million rand a year for something that I could do myself for half a million rand a year if there was a long-term commitment to that person. And so pro projects are just a rubbish container for work. They're the opposite of Docker. Docker's a great place to put a workload. Projects are bad. They're, there's nothing good. You put them on your balance sheet and you cry about them for years. Um, and you wish I hadn't spent all that money. And then you try and ravage your operational teams to pay for the stupid project that costs 10 times the amount of money that it should have done. So I believe in durable teams. And then they say, well, what if your teams don't have the right skills? Train them. And so we go back to the same thing. Watch John Hagel's thing, scalable learning, scalable efficiency. It has to be scalable learning. This is really difficult though. If I was the CEO of an incumbent bank and I want to go and create this more digitized offering, everything you're telling me doesn't feel right. I feel like I should be bringing in the consultants, spending a huge amount on of research, doing a massive system architecture piece of work, yeah. and then hiring the people or using the consultants to go and put a three, four year projects in place where at some point there'll be some deliverables which are going to make the customer experience and the internal control functions super, super happy. Is, yeah. is that not the right approach? Well, there's a couple of things that stand up in that question. One, the likelihood of you being a CEO of a big bank is nil. <laughs> right? So I don't think I have to worry about that much. But yeah, you're right. You know, the, the, there is an assurance fixation in most organizations and they will believe they don't have the skills and they don't. Yeah, and, 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 and make no mistake. People sell change as a series of Gantt charts and milestones. It's nothing to do with that. Change is a war, right? It's messy. It's ugly. Things go wrong. People get in. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a rough thing to do, any level of change. So we just want to create this kind of sanitized view of it on PowerPoint that says, you know, it, we'll just do this on this day and we'll just do this on this day. And these things are dependent on each other. And we create these dependency rubbish. Absolute rubbish. It, 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 in my experience, the opposite is true. Every single day, wake up and think, am I doing the right thing? Can I do anything different? Can I try something else out? Is there an edge that I can play with here? What can I trade off? And just replan it all in your mind so you live it, breathe it, and you know, eat it and sleep it. And so, so I don't believe in the, in, the, 
in the pomposity around change and the order and structure around change because it's not real. It's fake. It's fabricated. Nothing works like that in change. Uh, how do you so, keep the direction? How do you keep the uh, um, the direction consistent across the multiple parties you know that are involved, so that you don't have huge amounts of duplication or uh, you know data that's fragmented across your organisation? How do you keep some level of control so that you get the benefit of being an organisation and not just a series of unique startups doing randomly different things? Yeah. Okay. So 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 centralisation is terrible. Federalisation is terrible for different reasons. They both create, one creates massive order, but slowness and choke points. The other one creates chaos and duplication, whatever. And right in the middle is this great space, an integrated workforce. And so, so I, I believe in an integrated model. And that means that you, you have to design for democracy. You can't expect things just to, to vote themselves into. Order doesn't come from, from, from that world that you're describing right now. So when we, when we, when we take a data platform, for example, we don't want to create queues of people with BRDs asking for data. We design it in such a way that it is consumable by our customer. So, so you all, we always try to split things into core engineering and then, and then stuff that is consumable by my, multiple business units that we don't need any operational overhead on. So there is an absolute benefit in consistency and scale as long as you don't add the word choke. And typically choke is in there. As soon as you say, I'm going to give you scalable efficiency, what you're also saying is I'm going to choke you. You're going to queue and you're going to wait for five years and maybe I'll give you some information. Now, Craig Bond has gone on from his time at ABSA to um, chair a startup. I think it's a Stanford startup, eight or 10 people called Envil. They're offering a AI-driven banking experience with all the gamification that comes with that. And we've also got in South Africa a very similar uh, piece happening with Zero Bank, expected to come through uh, later in this year from uh, Michael Jordan, ex-CEO of FMB. There are challenger banks popping up all over the place. Is this something that you're worried about? Because obviously you're quite unique, Andy, and you're, you're working in a, in a way which most organizations, particularly in financial services, are going to find very difficult to go and do. You're suggesting it's incredibly important you do if you're going to keep up with the wave of technology that's out there. Are you therefore worried that banks, the incumbents, are just too slow and they are going to get ridden over by these startups? Not really. I try not to be, I think fear and looking over your shoulder, um, they're not good energies, you know, so, so stuff can happen. You, you, I'm not saying that it won't, you know, bad things won't happen and, you know, Already, we've seen a very disruptive en entrance into the South African banking market that was extremely successful, right? So, so you know, challenge, challenge is not new, actually. And, uh, and I, I, think, I think that at a certain point, you get sort of saturation. Um, uh, the bigger, bigger play for me isn't does somebody create another banking experience for another app? You know, you've got time. You, Capitec's been extremely success, successful, you've got banks, that everyone's going to be at this forever and eternity. So you mustn't just spend your whole life worrying about cannibalization. The big, big play actually is to move from a digitized bank to a digital bank. And, and, and that, that is actually where the battle will be won and lost in my view. Everyone is worried, creating digitized experiences, paper-free this, paper-free that, you know, um, that, that, that's great. That, will get, that, that is where we are going to be for the next few years. The digital bank is really where it becomes very interesting because the disruptive ability of a 
pure thoroughbred digital bank is multi-geography, you know, and multi-product, and that and that can be way more disruptive than going into yet another bank, doing another FICA process, moving your beneficiaries, all the toil that goes with a new bank, another digital bank, that, that's not that exciting for me. I, I, don't, I don't see that as a big deal. If I'm on take a lot and I want to buy a 36 inch TV, or that's actually, sorry, I should, shouldn't be, 56, 86 inch, a big TV, right? <laughs> I'm thinking my monitor, sorry. Um, I want to buy a big TV, like going to go and do something with a bank is rubbish. To, to get banking wit to follow me, that's interesting. You know, so so I, I, I think that's where the battlefield will, will be won and lost over the next few years. Simon, welcome. Hi, Colin. Thanks very much. Hi, Andy. Hey, Simon. I'm sure you've got a question for Andy, Simon. Yeah, I think the, the point he's touching on now is, is how do you take banking... To, to that client destination. You know, there's a lot of talk about some players implementing API gateways, but if I was uh, leading a bank and wanting to connect with, uh, with three FinTechs in a year's time, what are, what are three critical success factors, Andy, that you think uh, can get us along that road? So the, the, for me, the, the, the biggest barrier from, a, from an API perspective or, you know, like a truly digital bank, uh, there's two that jump out to me. The, the first one is identity. Um, I, think, I think digital identity is, is, is no one's done a great job. And that some countries have started to create a scheme, but it's not self-sovereign. Um, and, and so on uh, my LinkedIn post somewhere, you'll see this thing about self-sovereign identity. That is a com we can do that for an hour and go through why I really believe that if you get that right, you can have digital banks. Um, because in that, in that scheme, in that, in that digital identity that represents me via a cert, via homomorphic encryption, via whatever mechanism, I can have one key thing. And the key, key thing that's missing right now, and Poppy and uh, you know, a number of other, um, GDPR, they all try to allude to this. It's this idea of consent. So, so you have to have digital identity in order to consent to things. And both those things are not solved right now. So anyone who comes into the market, you've got GovChat, you've got a load of new channels that are coming in. And the biggest problem to doing any banking is who am I banking with? Um, yeah. and, and if you solve that at an industry level, things get quite interesting. Agreed, yeah. Cool. Simon, we've got two minutes to go. Do you want to close us out? And I might have just one last question for Andy if there is time once you're done there, Simon. Cool. I just, uh, I mean, we've watched over the last five odd years, Andy, if it is that long. And I think it's just been amazing how APSA has freed you up to really think about what it means to be a digital bank and the way you've approached it, I think, that has come through today. Uh, you know, in the sense that you really are about capabilities, teams, how one delivers modern digital change, how you've championed things like uh, cloud, blockchain, open source, zero knowledge proof, uh, <laughs> and sovereign identity that you were chatting to now. We won't get you started again. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but you really have been the guy that's been given the space to lead technology in a large financial services uh, organization at the highest level. And that, uh, that reputation is spoken about all over the place. So we really 
thank you, I think, Azaoka, for, for popping in today to share these insights. They will inspire people in the manufacturing industry. They will inspire telcos and certainly get our clients thinking about things, uh, things differently. And, and what I can tell you that what you've seen uh, on the outer of the cereal box with Andy Baker today really is on the inside too. In all our work with you, these are the things you champion, the things you drive, and, and, and this is the game that we've had to show up in um, as, as you've led APSA forward. It's been a, a privilege to work with you as an organization, and, and we really thank you for the, the time you've given us as a team today. Yeah, so massive thanks, Andy, and we're looking forward to, to more of these and more of these insights into the future. Cool, thank, thank you, you very much. And then, um, so in two weeks' time, we've got Tony Saldana. Just before I, I go on to that, though, please leave your feedback on the chat channel. It really does mean a lot and helps us get better and uh, think about who we're going to invite. Um, for this particular season of Inspire, we've got Tony Saldana coming up in two weeks. It's going to be back onto the Thursdays. He wrote the book, Why Digital Transformations Fail, which is in the Amazon bestseller list for um, in the uh, change management section. And it's going to be fascinating. Maybe next time we should actually get him on with Andy. I think it could be a really interesting debate. I'm going to leave you with a, uh, asking Andy a question. Andy, you can close out on this one. Can you give me your honest opinion about the benefit of PowerPoint and email in an organization? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. So I, I don't do email. Um, so I, I don't understand it. I, I think it's, it's vexing and taxing and I don't, I don't have the energy for it. There's lots of, and the beauty is I don't, I still don't think people, some people realize that I don't read them. I just, I just don't read them at all. Um, so uh, I just, I can't, figure out how to do a reply all or reply or, you know, and then, and then, and it just, Colin, you sent me that great thing. I forgot the name of that, Vinnie Jones, the email tree. And I laughed my head off at that. I, I, I cannot stand emails. Um, so, so don't get me started on that. PowerPoint, um, equally rough. Um, just, it's just a bad thing. So I, I remember at Stanford University, they were focused on fuzzy felt. Everything you had to do, you did on fuzzy felt, and I really enjoyed that because I thought it's a, you know it's something you it's low fidelity and you're not precious about your idea, and you feel stupid with fuzzy felt as well. It's quite it's quite humbling. So my 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 any organisation to be successful, uh, use a chat channel and fuzzy felt for your projects. We'll go and look it up. Cool. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks, thank guys. you very much. And for everyone on the call, we've gone over by two minutes. We'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks all. Thanks, Colin. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, guys.